0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the book of Deuteronomy. We continue to move through the second giving of the law of God to the nation of Israel, now the second generation. Moses gives these sermons as an exposition of how it is they will be blessed in the land so long as they think rightly of the Lord and act according to his will. And throughout this book, we read of the Deuteronomic blessings that come through obedience. And I would not have us think for a moment that these things do not hold as true today as they did then. The Lord blesses through the keeping of His holy will. The Lord blesses when we think rightly of Him and what He asks of us. And the reason that this is an eternal reality is because at the heart of the law is an eternal God... And his law, therefore, never changes. And at the heart of that law is verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it is this that we will unpack beginning tonight and in the following Sundays that are to come. And so I would invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Read along if you would like. I'll be reading simply verses 1 through 9. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. O Lord, we come to you this evening, for we are those who are weak and stiff-necked people. And we need the a powerful, life-giving word in the ministry of your spirit that comes through preaching. And however frail inadequate the sermon might be, we are given this promise that where there is word, there is spirit. And he does not stumble. He does not stutter. His words are powerful and true. And he awakens our hearts and he gives to us all that is needed for life and for godliness. For this is his great mission here on earth. To elevate us. To refresh and to renew us and to call us to greater gains of godliness. That you might do this, O Lord, for us and to us. That we might be your holy devoted children. We pray all this in your name. Amen. I remember years ago, my first high-paying gig. I was a senior in high school. It was 1998, and I was making $10 an hour, which was pretty good 22 years ago. I say that now, and I, I remember, I realize, I've lived twice the life since that time. 18 years old, and I was hired by a friend of my father's who ran the housing department in Douglas County, Georgia, to clean out the houses of those who had been evicted. Now, it was hard to get evicted after, out of Section 8 housing. Just let me tell you. Um, you either had to be involved in drugs or prostitution, or you couldn't pay the rent, which was a percentage of your salary, which, if you're on welfare, is not much. And so we would go to these units out of which people were evicted and we had to clean them to get them ready for the new tenants. I can still smell it. <laughs> I remember the first place we walked into the, it was the first day on the job, a fellow co-worker, uh, who worked on the maintenance side repairing appliances, said, make sure that when you walk into that unit that you kick the door open and don't walk straight in. I thought, well, I don't even know what that means. And he said he wouldn't explain, but he would let me find out. And so we went, a co-worker of mine, a, another 18, 19-year-old, and we kicked the door open. And as soon as we kicked the door, roaches fell down off the top of the door frame. You could not walk in that unit without stepping on roaches. They were everywhere. The floor was moving. It was teeming. It was a bad job. In that same unit, a little while later, after we had gotten rid of all the bugs, we walked into the kitchen. And in the kitchen, to the left, I can see it like it was five minutes ago. You had the refrigerator sitting in front as you walked into the kitchen, and to the left was the range And behind the range, in all of these units, there would be a sheet of plastic. But this plastic was coated in chitlin grease. Such that there was no way to separate the chitlin grease from the piece of plastic. It had to come down. Now, I don't want to just gross you out. I want you to think about how it is our homes and the business of our homes is conducted in such a way that the things that we do get into the very walls of our spaces. The other day I walk into the bathroom, and there beside the toilet, you could see someone's signature, a child, who had signed his name as he was sitting on the toilet. (laughs) If you walk into our dining room, you'll see little drawings If you walk into a kid's bedroom, you can tell where they have laid because there is a strip of grease where their feet go. You know what I'm talking about? And my wife and I will say, well, maybe we should repaint. And then we look at our six year old and say, "Mm, we've got at least 10 years before we need to start repainting the house. We make marks on our homes based upon our lives there. And all of these things indicate the kinds of people that we are, the habits that we have, and what is important to us. Perhaps your hardwood floors are scratched by the claws of all the pets that have lived in your homes. Or little door jams that have been chewed and gnawed on by the residents. I don't mean people at this point. If your kids are chewing on your door jams, There's probably a dietary issue. Give them some multivitamins. Uh, I'm talking about pets, of course. As Moses is preaching to Israel, he is saying to them, as you are moving into the land and as you build your homes there, there is something, rather someone, whose mutual occupation of that place will leave his mark. As the Lord inhabits your homes, what ought those homes look like? And at the very heart of the law is not wallpaper with words, it is a person himself who longs to live with you. Because at the very heart of the law is a person well, three persons, one God. That is Yahweh. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What does it mean to live according to a triune God who reveals himself in such a way that our lives are completely changed? Two points that I want to make this evening. The first, this is the commandment. This is the commandment. And second, marked houses and marinated hearts. Marked houses and marinated hearts. As we move deeper into these sermons which Moses gave at the end of his life, we do move into what is, in in my opinion, one of the most beautiful portions certainly in the Old Testament. And that is this expression of who God is. That at the center of all of God's revelation is a triune God who speaks to his people and he wishes for them to know him as he knows them. In this mutual relationship of love and delight. And so he gives them a law. Now when you hear the word law, I think oftentimes of the speed limit that's on this road. It says 35 miles an hour. Have you ever really gone 35 miles an hour? except to pass it to go to 55 miles an hour. When you go 35 miles an hour in a modern car, it feels like you're walking. And it feels like you will never get from the intersection of Cox Road and Ozark to this intersection right here. It feels like the longest part of the journey. Or from my house to get out of my neighborhood. And so laws often feel stifling. They are governors. They are limits on behavior. And that is what law does serve to do. And the reason why oftentimes those things are limiters or governors is because our hearts do not wish to be governed. Which is not a problem with the law, is it? It's a problem with our hearts. But nonetheless, we come to the law of God and we say, Alright God, what can I not do? I remember listening to John Piper preach one time and he talks about uh, using his own children as an illustration, which I guess every pastor does and every pastor's kid hates it. (laughs) And he tells the story of his own children as they were growing up and they would always ask the question, "What, what are the limits of what is right? How late can I stay out? Never did those children ask, Piper says, as I'm gone from my home, What can I do to bless your heart? What can I do to make you proud of me? And he says, this is the relationship that we have with the law. We think of the law of God as that which is encroaching upon a life that we would make for ourselves. Sorry, allergies. My eye is itching like crazy. (laughs) And so we receive the law not as a means of living a fulfilled and blessed life, But as an interruption to that, God understands this. Which is why when God gives the law over and over and over again, he tells us who he is. And he tells us what comes in keeping it. This is a law for the covenant people of God. It is a law for the land that they are to observe as those who are being given the land. This is the land, and this is how you shall live in the land. And you shall keep the whole law to keep the land holy by keeping yourself holy. It must be a holy place, and it must be a holy people. And at the heart of this, here it is, this is the commandment. The statutes and the rules... Hear, therefore, O Israel, verse 3, and be careful to do them. And then in verse 2, just above that, you may fear the Lord your God. These are the commandments that you may fear. Fear is at the very heart of the law. Now, when you hear fear and you think of the law in a very humanistic, perhaps secular way, or in a rebellious kind of way. Fear to you means, what do I do or not do in order not to be zinged by God? How do I prevent being smacked by God? That is not what God means by by fear here. In fact, we ought to look at fear in verse 2 in relationship to love in verse 5. What God wants is a holy affection. This is the law. And it is a holy summary. That is W-H-O-L-L-Y. It is a summary of the whole law. This is why God says this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules. And then he proceeds to give essentially one thing to hear fear, and love. And these things are linked together. He is talking about a holy reverence and awe that is born out of an affection for God because of what God has done. It is easy to obey the person who has saved your life. In fact, what is that natural response? Let's say, uh, parents, you have a child that's playing in the road and they get out there. You can't get to them. And there's a car coming and someone comes along and snatches them out of the road. And you say, thank you. How will I ever repay you? There is a natural sense, a reflexive sense of what? Indebtedness. How does one become indebted to God? By realizing his creatureliness and the gift that God has given in our salvation. This means that the law is powerless in and of itself to motivate you to keep it. Just by its presence, we are not assured of keeping it. There must be something above, beyond, greater and more glorious than the law itself. There was a time in this country where in every courthouse you saw the Ten Commandments. It never assured that anyone keep those commandments, did it? It was there as a reminder of how we break the law. But in fact, the mechanism by which we keep it is seen even here in chapter 6, verse 4. The triune God who reveals himself in such a way as not only to give us the standard, but to show how it is we are brought into that fellowship of saving grace so that we might keep it as God has intended. This is the law that is to be observed in the land. And not only for the single individual, but Moses continues to this sermon, now this is the commandment, the rule, and the statues of the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. It is a covenantal application. It is not a hyper-personal call, but rather it is for the family. It is for parents and for children and for grandchildren. It is for families wherever those families are found. And it is to be kept in the home and to be expressed from one generation to the next. And so it is to be broad, it is for the whole land, it is for every family, and it is to be deep. Your faithfulness, parents, is seen, it affects your children. And children, though you cannot imagine or envision it perhaps at this point, one day, by God's grace, you will have children. And they are watching. Even to this day, I call my father on the phone and I say, I don't know what to do here. I need your wisdom. And so this trickle-down holiness comes to me. And every one of those questions I ask him has everything to do about being a father and a husband. That's where all the questions came. As I got older, it was, I don't know how to do the husband thing. I don't know how to do the dad thing. But you've done all this. Can you tell me how to do it? That is how one generation declares to the next the faithfulness and mercy of God. In fact, children, you cut yourself off at the legs when you think that you can do it outside of the generations. Even if your parents are not Christians, even then there is conventional common grace wisdom. This is how God has made us. One generation to the next. But how great a blessing it is When our homes are built upon the foundation of God's holy will. And again, not just wallpaper with words on it, but a person who is present, whom we pay homage and acknowledge that lives in our very houses. When we go home from this place tonight, we walk into the door, and who has preceded us? Who is there? Every place we go is a family. Who is with us? It is the Lord God himself. He is a family, is he not? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this joining, this three persons joined together for all eternity... And the way in which he is most commonly and gloriously manifested, three persons, one God, is in the variety of persons in our very homes. In fact, the image of God cannot be rightly and fully understood apart from the home. Husband, wife, children even, if God so blesses. We are to be those who declare the glory of God throughout the generations. We are to hear, we are to hear, verse 3, hear therefore, God says there is this commandment, and so hear it, hear it that it might go well with you. The beginning of all righteousness is shutting your mouth. Listen, but, 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 no, listen, listen, God says, hear me. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now in the catechism, the confessions, we ask this question. Can God do anything? And this is a question that a a child would ask. In fact, this is a question that the scholastics ask. And this is a question that many adults ask. And there's a wonderful answer in our children's catechism. Can God do anything? God can do all his holy will. Which means what? There are some things that God cannot do. Sin. God cannot do anything that is outside of his holy character. God is bound by the confines of his holiness. Now, God can make purple elephants. But he cannot make adultery righteous. God can make ducks as big as dogs, but he cannot call good evil and evil good, can he? In fact, I'd love to see a dog-sized duck, like a Great Dane-sized duck. And I would ride him upon the lake. God can He could have created a world where those things are possible. Who knows, maybe there were dog-sized ducks at some point and they got all extinct because people had a hankering for duck meat and there was a lot of meat on those bones. There used to be something called a dodo bird, kids. Did y'all know that? It's gone now. It's extinct. Never to be seen again on earth. What God cannot do is violate His righteousness. And so what that means as it relates to law is this. God can only reveal one kind of law. Nothing can come from God that is not good. God could not have created a world that wasn't good. And so, as it relates to law, if you say, God, please just give me a break, he cannot. And in fact, God said to Adam and Eve, if you disobey this, you will surely die. And the reason why God showed mercy and could show mercy is because every sin that every saint has, is, or will commit has been paid for through Christ Jesus, past, present, and future. Christ has paid for all of it. God's justice and his mercy are not violating one another because they kiss on the cross. They meet together and are satisfied through the blood of Christ Jesus. And so as God is saying to Israel, this is how you shall live if you wish to be blessed, God isn't just coming up with arbitrary rules to show them he's in charge. He is revealing that which is necessary. Not only eternally in relationship to the moral law, but in relationship to the ceremonial law, God is preparing them to receive the Messiah. It's all good, even if some of it has been abrogated, fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And so when God says, do this and you shall live, do that and you shall die, he isn't arbitrary. He isn't just going, "Mm, that one, not that one, that one, that one. No. It is eternally part of his character. And so when God says, do this and you shall be blessed, It is a promise that cannot be changed. But what do we often focus on? Uh, Uh-uh-uh, uh-uh-uh, don't do that. Well, what if I want to? Try it. And in fact, God says that to Israel time and time again. Okay, go your own way. And what happened? Exactly what God promised not cruelly or arbitrarily or beyond as an injustice, an overreaction to their sin. That is what we do, isn't it? But as a perfect meeting out of wrath against sin, God says, if you are going into the land, you must live by the rules that I have established. Listen and take it to heart, because the instruments of your own cursing You, you will bring it upon yourself. You. This is why children, this is always interesting to me. And I did it. As your children go in age, oftentimes they will look at their parents and they'll say, this is your fault. (laughs) Why? Well, they're lying to themselves. They know that it is not true. They're hiding from their own corruption. This is sort of what I talked about this morning. We blame God for our own inability, our own lack of love and affection for him. And so God says to Israel, if you are to be blessed, this is the commandment. So how do we do it? What is the path? That's what we find next. Verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Often referred to this section as the Shema or here. The God of the covenant reveals himself and we are to see him as he has shown himself and love him as he has said. When marriage vows are taken, The substance of those vows are important. But what is most important is the person who is saying them and the sentiment. The language of those vows explains the extent of it. Its borders, its boundaries, what you are being called to do and not do. But when you are looking at your beloved across from one another and the minister is standing there, however you did it, and you are saying these things... You're not thinking, okay, in that moment, I'm saying this, I better mean it. What you're doing is you're looking at your beloved and you're going, I believe it because the person on the other side of me is the one who is saying it. There is an energy and an affection that is broader and deeper and more substantial than the words themselves. Now, I'm not saying the words are not important. What I'm saying is that behind the words is the one who speaks them. And those words only carry meaning and weight because of who is saying them. Now, of course, with people, we often break our vows. We break them in big ways. We break them in small ways. God does not do this. And the way in which our hearts change in relationship to the law of God is we listen to the one who has said it. And God is saying, look at me. This is who I am. The triune God of heaven and earth, hero Israel, the Lord our God, The Lord is one. Moses is putting on display for Israel the countenance, the personality, the intention, the character of God himself, Yahweh. Whom we know now to be because of the continuing of Revelation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the only right response to seeing God is to see him and adore him. And so our reception of the law is like receiving a letter from your beloved, and the reason why that letter is special is not because of just the words on the page, but the hand of the one who wrote it. In fact, if someone else wrote a letter like that to your wife, husbands, (laughs) what are you doing? You don't get to do that. In fact, the scriptures say the Lord our God is a jealous God. He is jealous for our hearts. This, all of this, is a letter penned by God expressing His deep and profound affection for Israel. And at the very heart of that is, this is who I am. This is who I am. And there is no greater revelation of God than the revelation of Himself. He has revealed Himself to men, the lawgiver and this revelation of self is not a revelation like this is this beautiful thing that we're going to put in a glass case never to be touched. But God has revealed himself in such a way that he is inviting his people to enter into blessed fellowship with him. This is the only kind of revelation of trying God makes. So... Somebody will say, and I've heard this, that the most profound theological sentence in the whole of Scripture is, in the beginning, God. But this is false, as far as it goes. It is true that in the beginning there was God. But rather, what we ought to do is extend that first sentence a bit further. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That we are never to understand the doctrine of God outside of his activity of creation. And what makes those two phrases link together significantly is his triune nature. Our God is not a bachelor. He is within himself a family. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's not a consummate bachelor. He is a God who has known himself And because he has for all eternity delighted in fellowship, creation is the expression of his love for himself between the persons. This is kind of esoteric, strange stuff. You and I are the product of his self-interpersonal affection. This is what children are. Children, you may not want to hear it. But you exist because your mother and father love each other very much. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> and you go, "Ooh, ooh, I don't want to hear it. But it's everything. And that's the way it should be. In fact, that's the way that God designed it. Life springs forth from love. And when God says, I am triune... It is an invitation by way of presentation. God says, this is who I am, and there is a relational gravity to it. He is the planet, we are the moons. And we circle around him, and we are drawn to him and kept in orbit with him because of his revelation of redemption. You are to never read the law apart from that. Every time you read the law, remember God and who he is and how he loves you. So that you can receive it at times like medicine. But as Mary Poppins said, what is it? Just a spoonful of sugar? The sweetness behind the difficulty of hearing a command that sort of gets in your life and has to change you is that God is at the center of it. And it softens the blow. When the Lord reveals himself to men, he is inviting them to join with him in the great eternal exercise of mutual delight and enjoyment. And this is what Moses says. In application of this principle, make your houses and your bodies places where God resides in this way. The shell that holds the covenant family and the shell that holds your soul is to be architecturally transformed to reveal this significant truth. So he says, and these words that I command you today, verse six, shall be on your heart You are to wear them. You are to impress them upon yourself. They shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Your entire life together as a covenant body and as an individual alone should reflect the reality that the triune God has invited you into himself to fellowship with him for all eternity. And so every conversation, every question your children ask, leads back to the manner by which you have been brought into the fellowship of the Godhead, which now is through whom? Jesus Christ. And so every one of your houses needs to have a little steeple on top of it. And that steeple indicates this is a Christ-exalting home. I'm not saying go out and put a steeple with a cross on it. I am, I'm a company OPC man. I don't want you to do that. <laughs> what I mean is your houses are religious institutions in this way. It's the place where you learn first and best because education belongs to the home, how to honor Christ with every faculty. Everything. This is one of the things I love about musicals. Musicals are this sort of strange world in which all of a sudden, everybody knows to sing the same song. Where did they learn it? Your homes should be the kinds of places where if children, your parents started breaking out and singing the psalm, you just sing along with them. Because it's here and it's here. Our homes should be marked. Our hearts should be marinated in the principle of divine beauty. And the place where that is seen most splendidly is in the horror of the cross because we know for what it really is. The worst day on earth is for the Christian the greatest show of affection because God wants our hearts and our homes to look like his own. When you know that you're having company over, what do you do? You clean up. pick up to acknowledge that God is always in our presence, that he fills our table, our kitchen. He is with us when we lie down, when we go to sleep, when we wake. He is ever there. Our speech, our conduct, our thinking, the way we use our hands, how we build our homes, and I don't mean architecturally, like do you use wood siding or brick siding? How you establish the habits and the contours of your behavior must reflect this principle. The triune Lord needs to be able to live there because it's his house first. What does that look like? And Moses says, it is the exercise of revealing God's identity. Make God's identity, his triune identity, real. Now, I say that sentence and it's almost useless if it is not explained. The fellowship of the Godhead that delights in righteousness and service must be the thing that dominates our homes. We rejoice in holiness. We mourn over unrighteousness. We laugh in the face of danger. And we worship together. It's fundamental. And God says, if you do this stuff, guess what? You'll be blessed. And God is saying to Israel, when God makes a promise, in essence, he is saying this, put me to the test try me, not cynically, not, okay, I'll give it 40 days, Lord, but pour out your life not only in service to God, but in manifesting his beauty and grace. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we do ask tonight